Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. The election of Donald Trump in 2016 shocked and surprised a number of commentators, especially because his own attitudes seem to be in conflict with much of what people often associate with conservatism. However, my guest today, Matt McManus, argues that Trump and others represent a new form of conservatism, one with a long history of development and formed as a response to various social dynamics. The goal of his recent book, The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism from Palgrave Macmillan in 2020, is to provide a genealogical analysis of this new form of conservative politics. Matt McManus received his PhD from the Socio-Legal Studies Program at York University, Canada in 2017. He is currently a visiting professor of political science and international relations at the University of Tech de Monterey, Mexico and is also the author of Making Human Dignity Central to International Human Rights Law, A Critical Legal Argument. So, Matt McManus, welcome back to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So, to start things off, we always like to kind of have our authors introduce themselves. So, could you tell us a bit about um, yourself and what your research tends to focus on? Sure. So, um, I graduated from York University with my degree in social legal studies in the summer of 2017. Uh, and after a brief stint doing postdoctoral research on the legal problems of low-income families and working for the Committee for International Justice and Accountability, I took up my present position at Tech de Monterey, uh, where I've been for the last two years. Um, and my research has two prongs. One is a more constructive prong, putting forward a normative argument for what I call a critical legal approach to human dignity, centered around democratizing uh, society and establishing more egalitarian distributions of goods and honors. And the other prong of my research tends to be much more critical. Uh, It analyzes various forms of reactionary politics uh, and tries to situate the counter-human dignity that I'm being developing in my more constructive work uh, within a increasingly fragmented and dangerous geopolitical context. All right. So this book begins by looking at some recent surprise surprise movements in elections as a sort of debunking of Fukuyama's end of history thesis. Well, this is simplifying a lot of both your and Fukuyama's positions. I think it's the core of what you get at in the first pages of your book. So I'm wondering if you can start by unpacking our current social and political moment as you understand it at the beginning of this book. Sure. I should say there's a personal dimension to this work that's related to the Fukuyama thesis. So uh, I was born in 1988, uh, just around the time when the Cold War was coming to an end, uh, and end of history rhetoric was really gaining a lot of traction. Uh, And I more or less came of age uh, in that kind of situation. The first really grand historical event uh, I recall being vividly aware of was the 9-11 attacks when I was in grade eight. But... The interesting thing about Fukuyama's book is it was never as dogmatic uh, and kind of monological uh, as is sometimes applied. 
at the end of the book, he talks about why it is that the yearning for recognition and history that some individuals have, particularly individuals on the political right, uh, and he brings up Donald Trump, pathetically enough, uh, might actually lead to the resuscitation of history as a kind of dominant logic that we're living through. Uh, and of course, that's more or less what's happened. Uh, so I don't want to imply that I'm just sitting here criticizing Fukuyama like so many others have. I think there's actually a lot of interesting things in this book. Uh, but what I'm talking about, what I say is that the rebirth of history with the emergence of postmodern conservatism resulted from developments within modernity and now postmodernity that have very deep roots uh, in our cultural traditions. Uh, and we need to appreciate these deep roots if we're going to try to understand why we live in the moment that we do right now. And of course, if you're a progressive, how to push against it. Moving on, you introduced postmodernism, which is a difficult term, partly because it has been used to describe movements in art, literature, and philosophy, although there seem to be some kind of core elements to it. So could you give us kind of a brief primer or introduction to postmodern theory as you understand it here? Sure. Well, in the book, uh, I make a typological distinction between those who understand postmodernism as a theoretical position uh, and those who understand postmodernism as a cult as a cultural condition, uh, which is the way that I approach it. Uh, and usually it's only the first that's given significant attention, uh, certainly by the right-wing media. So postmodern theory is a novel form of epistemic skepticism uh, that emerged typically uh, starting in the 1960s uh, with people like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault. Uh, later, you could add people like Richard Rorty during some of these hard periods, Ayatollah Spivak, uh, and others. Uh, and it's a novel form of epistemic skepticism focusing more on the limitations of language uh, to either holistically or positivistically picture the world as it actually is. Uh, and there are a lot of different dimensions to it. Some of it is interesting. Uh, I personally am unconvinced by most forms of epistemic skepticism. Uh, and I should say, ultimately, postmodern theory has kind of had its heyday. Uh, and I think it's actually starting to decline in popularity across the university, even in progressive circles. Uh, you know, you see people like Alain Bejir, Slavoj Žižek, uh, Robert Brandom on the analytical tradition, uh, who all push uh, pretty staunchly against the idea that we should embrace uh, the kind of deep epistemic skepticism uh, that postmodern theorists in their heyday like to put forward. The way that I tend to approach postmodernism isn't as a skeptical theory, uh, but as what I call a cultural condition. Uh, and when I mean a cultural condition, I'm drawing on the research of people like Jean-François Lyotard, uh, who's probably most well-known uh, for his book, The Postmodern Condition, uh, David Harvey, Mark Fisher, uh, Frederick Jameson. Uh, and all of them point out that what postmodern theorists did uh, wasn't so much develop new forms of epistemic skepticism uh, as capture this cultural condition in thought in a rather Hegelian way. Uh, and this is important because they're going to say epistemic skepticism isn't just the purview of a certain number of eclectic French uh, academics now. That's becoming more and more a ubiquitous uh, outlook that many different individuals hold to. Uh, and this has ramifications in art, in literature, uh, in philosophy, certainly, and in politics. Uh, and I say, once we appreciate that postmodernity is a cultural condition rather than just a theory, 
you can appreciate why it would be inevitable that not only was it, would this impact left-wing politics, uh, and it has in certain interesting ways, uh, but this form of epistemic skepticism would also impact various forms of right-wing politics. Uh, and this has given birth to the novel political tradition that I call postmodern conservative. Yeah, kind of jumping off of that, one thing you find interesting, you mentioned that um, the relationship between conservatism and postmodernism, uh, you find that conservatives are often critical of postmodern theory, although they rarely make the connection many theorists do between postmodern culture and late capitalist development. But you argue that there seems to be a relationship between the two, that late capitalist societies often produce postmodern cultures, and that postmodern culture is a sort of expression of the dynamics of late capitalism. So can you unpack the connection between these two dynamics? Yeah, absolutely. I should point out that one of the things that conservative theory, particularly in the 1990s, was prone to doing uh, and has a long history of this. Uh, is naturalizing capitalism as a kind of ubiquitous way of life uh, that's been with us for all time uh, and uh, it has deep roots, even in something as foundational as human nature. Uh, and this isn't the way that even 18th century political, uh, political economists would understand it. If you read you know, The Wealth of Nations uh, or even David Ricardo's book on principles of political economy, they're well aware of the fact that they're living in a time period where something really radical new is emerging. Uh, and it's exciting uh, and interesting because the emergence of capitalism is disruptive. It opens new spaces uh, for interrogating issues that weren't available before. Uh, but it's also frightening, of course, since the new can never be predicted and never be controlled uh, the way something that's traditional and known can. Uh, and Marx put this very well, Marx and Engels, I should say, in the Communist Manifesto, when they talk about how capitalism is a revolutionary mode of production uh, that's literally melting all that is solid into the air uh, and profaning all that was once taken as hope. Uh, and what they talk about in this book uh, and other more sophisticated commentators have described is how capitalism operates according to a logic of what's called creative destruction, uh, according to somebody like uh, Schupeter, right? Uh, it tears down the old in order to make way for the new. The new, and this includes uh, old capitalist firms uh, over a long enough time period. Uh, but it also includes societies, right? It changes the way that people think about themselves. It changes the way they relate to others. Uh, it changes the way we understand labor uh, and the rights of laborers, for instance, to migration. Uh, it fosters urbanization and pluralism uh, at the expense of ruralism and traditionalism, uh, and the list goes on and on uh, in a number of ways. Uh, it radically upends our society. Uh, and the connection of this to postmodern culture uh, is manifold, right? One, of course, is the sense that by tearing down the old and replacing it with the new, traditions and ways of thinking about things that are commonsensical no longer have time to ossify uh, and become commonsensical the way they once were. Uh, you know, you can't sit there, if you want to put it simply, uh, and anticipate even what kind of life you're going to be living in 20 years from now. Uh, because new technologies and new forms of organization might totally upend it. Uh, it also means that people tend to approach the world uh, in the way that a consumer approaches whether or not to buy a commodity or buy something at the store, right? Uh, it's up to you what kind of chocolate bar, ice cream, or vegetables 
you want to buy when you go into the grocery store. Uh, and increasingly, people see it as up to them to decide what way they want to look at the world. Uh, and just like you can't sit there and tell the consumer that they've made a bad choice, it's up to them if they have the money, they can buy it. Uh, it's not up to epistemic elites to tell others how they should interpret the world or what's worth believing in. To develop things a little more here, one of the ways you develop the relationship is in postmodernism's dynamism regarding space and time and are related to stabilizing at the level of identity. This has been explored in a variety of theoretical texts, such as those by David Harvey or Frederick Jameson, and you also find contemporary fiction and film, particularly science fiction, to be rather illustrative of some of these new dynamics. So can you unpack what you see happening at the level of like individual identity? Yeah, I should say that I think the greatest postmodern theorist uh, actually isn't a theorist at all. And if you really want to have a good understanding of what postmodernity is all about, uh, just crack open any of Philip K. Dick's books, uh, and he'll tell you. Uh, you know, he had a better handle on this uh, than almost anyone else I can think of. Uh, Philip K. Dick being the author of a classic text like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, or The Man in the High Castle, um, or Scanner Darkly, and so on and so forth. Uh, but what I'm talking about when I talk about our changing relationships to space-time uh, under conditions of postmodernity is obviously not a physical concept uh, of space and time. You know, that's very well uh, analyzed by contemporary physicists. Uh, what I'm talking about is our cultural understanding uh, of space and time, and I should also say our social, uh, our social geographic uh, experience of it. So one of the things that I point out is that in postmodern cultures, uh, where the sense that the end of history had been reached emerged, we developed a very interesting relationship to time from a cultural standpoint, uh, because earlier generations, particularly liberal generations, saw themselves as living in a historically very significant period. They were at the cusp of progressive developments that allowed them the freedom and the opportunities to remake the world. Postmodern subjects don't feel that way. Uh, their relationship to time is that history is over, uh, that it's not your place to try to radically change things too much. Uh, and so the concept of time that postmodern uh, individuals tend to experience isn't historical. Uh, it's, it's phenomenological. Uh, it's based on their own inward experience of the world. Uh, and this has consequences, of course, for how postmodern subjects un understand freedom, uh, since because there is no history uh, that they can be a part of, and they can't change the structure of society all that much. Uh, they're not free in a social sense. Uh, they're free only at the level of individual experience. Uh, and this, of course, is very amenable to the neoliberal logic uh, that we've all been living under over the last 30 years. You don't tinker that much with social structures uh, or the global neoliberal order. Uh, if you want to tinker with something, try to improve your own life. Clean your room, uh, as one of the more famous uh, reactionary commentators today has put it. Uh, the way that, that uh, late capitalism shifts our lives geographically, uh, or experience of geography, of course, uh, is exactly the way that Marx and Engels described it in the Communist Manifesto. The world has been brought closer together by globalization. Uh, this has profoundly transformed the way that we live. Uh, and sometimes you can see it quite literally. Uh, rural areas and the idea of the big country uh, that was once so foundational, for instance, to 
the American imaginary uh, have all but disappeared and been replaced by increasingly claustrophobic urban spaces uh, where we all have it because life is more efficient uh, when you live in an urban space uh, than when you live in a big country. Uh, it's also brought the world together in the sense of breaking down national and traditionalist barriers uh, for the free movement of labor. So, of course, we know that modern developed countries are characterized by very high levels of migration. Uh, a lot of this is the legacy of colonial time period, but we can put that aside. Uh, and this quite literally brings areas of the world uh, or these cultural uh, ways of experiencing the world to uh, people's doorsteps uh, in a way that's really unprecedented uh, in the history of modern society. Uh, and this, of course, also changes our sense of geography. For many people, uh, this is a positive development since it means that we are now free to live anywhere without restriction, uh, such as the ones that would have been imposed on us for a very long period of time. Uh, but for others, particularly those in a more conservative bent, it's an extremely frightening thing since it means the solid lifestyles and sense of place uh, associated with those lifestyles that earlier generations would have enjoyed are liquefying in the face uh, of new forms of difference and new forms of pluralism that are emerging very, very rapidly across the board. In response to some of these dynamics, numerous new theories or discourses have been produced to try and restabilize ourselves and our societies. However, you see these discourses, particularly liberalism, as having failed to bring about the restabilizing effects they were supposed to. So can you unpack the shortcomings here? To the liberal standpoint, you mean? Yeah, among others. You you see that, or you kind of argue that there have been enough number of attempts to kind of restabilize our social and identity, our social identities, I should say. Um, but I remember you seem to think that some of these discourses failed to kind of deliver on the promises they made. Absolutely. And this is one of the things that I point out in my new book uh, that I'm finishing right now called Liberalism and Liberal Rights. Uh, I should say that I'm broadly sympathetic uh, to the liberal project, particularly as espoused by figures like Immanuel Kant uh, or John Rawls. Uh, but I think the promise of liberalism to establish a society where all was treated as more, were treated as moral equals uh, isn't what we have right now. Uh, what we have is a society where people are not treated uh, as moral equals the way they should, according to liberalism, interpreted it in its best light. Uh, what we have is a society where people are treated as potential competitors uh, and increasingly stratified hierarchy. Uh, and people under these conditions have rights to compete and to try to get to the top, but they have no right to expect a certain kind of treatment because they have any kind of intrinsic dignity or value. And I think that this is obviously going to generate a very conflict-ridden society. Uh, and one defined by profound new forms of alienation. Uh, and this is compounded, of course, because the neoliberal interpretation of what liberalism is supposed to be about uh, is one where political freedom has very little meaning uh, and economic competition is virtually everything. Uh, and what you get in a situation where society is increasingly a, a hierarchy uh, and a very competitive hierarchy and people have very little political freedom to change this uh, are the forms of resentment and agitation that we're seeing increasingly defining modern politics. Um, and there's some positive dimensions to this. Uh, I mean, I welcome the emergence of things like what I call liberal socialism uh, in the work of Bernie Sanders, or sorry, the agitation of people like Bernie Sanders uh, or other new congressmen uh, like the squad in the United States. Um, but the other reaction to it is, of course, this form of postmodern conservatism, 
uh, which I see as a regression to a pre-liberal mode uh, of living. Yeah, so that brings us finally to postmodern conservatism as a new attempt to kind of address the shortcomings you see in late capitalism. So this is obviously a very contemporary phenomena, but you trace its ideological origins in the writing of figures such as Edmund Burke, Joseph de Maistre, and a few others. So can you give us a sense of these very early intellectual origins? Of course. And I should say right off the bat that uh, I did not coin the neologism uh, postmodern conservatism. Uh, to my knowledge, um, it began floating around as early as the 1990s uh, in the work of people like uh, Peter Lawler, uh, who was actually a conservative political theorist uh, who mainly focused uh, on American political problems. Uh, but there were also other people who are characterized as postmodern conservatism, uh, conservatives, uh, including Robert Bork, uh, who appears in my book. Uh, a number of legal scholars applied the label to him uh, at that point. What I do in my own book uh, is argue that since postmodernity is a cultural condition rather than just a particular theoretical way of looking at the world, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we would see postmodern forms of conservatism emerge. Uh, if anything, it would be inevitable. We're all shaped in various ways by our culture and our society, uh, and that includes conservatives. In fact, in fact it might especially include conservatives. Um, but what I point out is that the conservatism was uniquely amenable to mutation under the conditions of postmodernity, because conservatives going back centuries uh, have always been skeptical of the promises uh, and the outlook of things like scientific or liberal rationalism uh, or universalism. Uh, and you can see this in the work of people like Edmund Burke, uh, who was extremely critical of elitist philosophers uh, writing in France, uh, or even the more hyper-liberal capitalists of his own time, uh, who he saw as having little respect for tradition, little respect for culturally relative ways uh, of apprehending the world. Uh, they always wanted to eliminate these um, to make way for some universalistic grand project that was going to remake the world wholesale. Uh, but Burke is fairly moderate next to some of the other figures I look at. Uh, somebody like Joseph de Maistre, for example, insists that reason, or, or what is sometimes called philosophy, uh, is an utterly impotent tool. What we need to do instead is put our faith in authority uh, and in traditional forms of authority, especially. Uh, in his case, you know, the throne and altar of France. Uh, and he says that if we need to use force uh, in order to demand that people acquiesce to these forms of authority uh, and the outlooks associated with them, uh, then so be it. Because the alternative, uh, if reason is allowed to have too much of a uh, power, is going to be chaos, since each person understands reason to signify uh, or to imply something different. And then I go forward uh, looking at some more contemporary figures, someone like uh, Michael Oakeshott, who's most famous for his essay, Rationalism and Politics. He makes the argument that conservatism entails a wholesale rejection uh, of, at the very least, utilitarian or calculative uh, forms of rationality. And he makes the argument instead that what we need to do is have a politics of faith, uh, faith that our traditions are better, faith uh, in our ways of thinking about things, the languages that we use. Uh, and this is very, very proximate to the work of any number of postmodern theorists, I should say. Uh, Richard Rorty is probably the most obvious. And it's yet another sign uh, of how amenable conservatism is to mutation into postmodern forms under the right conditions. Uh, and then this uh, analysis or genealogy of 
And with a look at two figures, I spent quite some time with, uh, since my background is in legal studies. Um, so Robert Bork uh, and Lord Devlin, uh, who were two conservative legal theorists uh, in the late 20th century. Uh, Devlin uh, famously argued against Professor Hart uh, that homosexuality should remain criminalized. Uh, and his essays make the claim, or his lectures, I should say, that uh, liberals always have these weird rationalistic ways of looking at things. Uh, and they try to appeal to evidence uh, and universalistic standards to make the claim that we should adopt liberal policies. Uh, and he said that's not how society should be organized. The way society should be organized is according to the views of what he called the man on the Clapham omnibus. Uh, the man on the Clapham omnibus being the right-minded figure who more or less shares the mores and expectations of his society. Uh, and Devlin goes so far as to say the man on the Clapham omnibus whose views should pervade and cross society doesn't even have to be right. Uh, he doesn't have to have his views grounded uh, in anything more substantial than just a gut feeling uh, that this is the correct thing to do. Um, because criticizing him or saying that he needs to ground his views in more than just a gut feeling uh, has a kind of anti-democratic or anti-populist sentiment. Uh, and Bork uh, makes very similar arguments when he talks about the new class which are a bunch of intellectuals he thinks are pervasive in American law schools uh, and American culture, who insist that we should reform the world uh, in line with some universalistic concepts of reason. Uh, and Borg says, no, you know, we shouldn't do that. We should instead have what he calls respect for particularity, uh, which is difference, history, culture, tradition. Uh, and his argument is that conservatism is precisely about having respect for these relative cultural forms of particularism. Uh, and rejecting the brand universalistic narrative of something like reason, uh, which, of course, would be absolutely in line with what somebody like uh, Michel Foucault uh, would want uh, in some of his moments at the very least, uh, except, of course, interpreted in a very different political manner. Moving forward and turning to who we might consider the first postmodern conservative and who you just recently alluded to, you look at the work and ideas of Peter Lawler, who gets his understanding of postmodernism from a variety of figures we might not immediately turn to, including St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. So his understanding of postmodernism is maybe a bit different than what we might immediately assume. So can you give us a sense of what his own philosophical or political orientation here is? Yeah, I should say that I think Lawler is a very smart uh, man. Um, I disagree with him fundamentally, but he certainly was uh, an eclectic and interesting scholar. He wasn't afraid of pushing boundaries. Um, and one of the ways he pushes boundaries is by reinterpreting postmodernism uh, post uh, in a way that might be counterintuitive to many. Uh, so his argument is that modernity is defined by a break, particularly from Catholic scholasticism uh, and the idea that the ontology of the world is solid and set uh, because God created the world and God continuously interacts with the world uh, to make sure everything is more or less going the way it's supposed to. Uh, in modernity, when we abandon this teleological way of thinking about things, uh, we're left with the notion that, well, there are no rules uh, embedded in nature, and there's certainly no rules set down by God, uh, so we can recreate the world and we can recreate ourselves to be whatever we want. Uh, and Lawler points to transhumanism, for example, uh, as a very distinctively hypermodern, as the term he uses, um, innovation in that respect. The idea that there is no human nature, uh, there is no human body even, 
that necessarily needs to be one thing or another. Uh, if we can use technology to change and improve in it uh, in a way that's consonant with our subjective desires, why not go about doing that? Uh, and what Lawler calls postmodernism would be rejection uh, of this hypermodern subjectivist other. Uh, and he interpreted postmodernism uh, as a return to something that would be closer to a neo-scholasticism. Uh, and it would be much more oriented around virtues. Uh, it would accept the contributions of modernity while at the same time looking past uh, and gradually abandoning its limitations. Uh, he never laid out his vision for what a postmodern conservative society would look at systematically, or at least as systematically as I would have liked. Um, but you can read about it in a number of his essays. Um, his book on virtue, I think, is particularly useful there. Looking at postmodern conservatism, you see it as expressing a sort of pastiche, to borrow Frederick Jameson's term, and generating its own version of identity politics, appropriating progressive language for reactionary politics that seem closer to Schmidt or Nietzsche. So can you unpack the dynamic going on here? Of course. So one of the things uh, that I draw upon uh, is Nietzsche's theory of resentment uh, and Carl Schmidt's theory of political antagonism. Uh, although I should point out that this is very much a left-wing reading uh, of Nietzsche that would be more in line with the thinking of somebody like Wendy Brown, uh, who I think is the best critical theorist working in the world today, bar none. Uh, and she talks about how it is that Nietzsche had a very elitist understanding of resentment. Uh, resentment was the feeling of the weak towards the powerful uh, and their desire, put it colloquially, uh, to put the powerful in their place. Uh, and Nietzsche talks, for instance, about how in the work of early Christian theorists, uh, when the poor are in heaven looking down upon the rich and the sinners uh, in hell and laughing at them, uh, this expresses resentment of the weak towards the powerful. Brown makes the argument, and I think that she's very right, uh, that resentment can absolutely be resentment of the powerful towards the weak uh, or towards the disadvantaged who want their fair share of pot, as it were. Uh, and you see this with many Trumpist supporters who often come from positions of relative affluence and privilege, uh, not typically extraordinary affluence and privilege, but relative affluence and privilege. Uh, and they deeply resent the arguments made uh, that they should redistribute power uh, and privileges that they've enjoyed uh, to individuals and groups that have long been disadvantaged uh, by the status quo. Uh, and you can think of people like women, you can think about things like LGBTQ individuals, migrants, obviously a very popular one uh, that I've talked about in the book, um, liberals, liberal elites. Uh, and what I argue is that the resentment generated uh, by the powerful towards the weak uh, who want their fair share of the pie leads postmodern conservatives to take an agonistic approach to politics uh, that's broadly aligned with Carl Schmitt's um, theory of how it is that politics operate. So postmodern conservatives, as I mentioned, uh, see the world in terms of identity and power. Uh, and they believe that they are entitled to most of the power in society, uh, that these other groups that want to take it from them or redistribute it are wrong. Uh, and this leads them to embrace a political outlook that's framed on the friend-enemy distinction. Uh, so they're most concerned with aligning 
with other postmodern conservatives who share their outlook about the world. And they tend to see anybody who doesn't get on, get on board uh, with their outlook uh, as an antagonist who needs to be overcome or marginalized. And this is partly why they give their such faith uh, to leaders like Donald Trump or Viktor Orban, uh, who similarly frame in politics in this very agonistic way, them us fashion, uh, precisely because these authoritarian or authoritarian leaning figures, uh, their primary appeal is, of course, that they're going to own or trash or destroy the enemies of the postmodern conservatives. Yeah, following up on what you were just developing there, turning to more contemporary expressions of postmodern conservatism, you look at various responses to the 2008 fiscal crisis, such as the rise of Viktor Orban and later Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro, and the Brexit movement. You argue that these were reactions to a serious desperation and precarity produced by decades of neoliberal austerity programs, albeit reactions that missed the mark. However, one theme you see connecting them is that they are all modern variations of postmodern conservatism. So can you pull them together and explain how these various movements and figures function as postmodern reactions to late capitalism? Sure. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I point out is that postmodern conservatism as a form of conservatism uh, that's very much based on the traditions and outlooks uh, of each respective society doesn't look exactly the same anywhere. Uh, you know, liberalism tends to have more unanimity or consistency of application uh, because neoliberalism is a universalistic uh, theory. Uh, and postmodern conservatism uh, tends to be much more of a pastiche-like uh, sense of what people's identities are, drawing on a variety of different anachronistic cultural sources uh, and blended together in this hyper-real way. Uh, so in the case of somebody like Donald Trump, what you have is a very distinctively American form of postmodern conservatism uh, that's based around bluster and paranoia. Um, and the two go together since, of course, bluster uh, is the twin cousin of paranoia, since it's only by overcoming tremendous enemies that are extremely ubiquitous uh, and very frightening uh, that you can develop this posture of yourself uh, as a big man who's accomplished, uh, who's beaten the odds and transformed yourself uh, into something that's more impressive than usual. Uh, it's also a distinctively American form of postmodern conservatism, uh, since Trump allies the distinction that we usually draw between telling the truth and telling a lie, um, because he embraces a bullshit approach uh, to speaking uh, and to the truth. Uh, and this is actually a technical term from Harry Frankfurt, who distinguished between dishonesty and bullshit by saying that a dishonest person is aware of what the truth is uh, and nonetheless decides to lie about it. Uh, and his example was Richard Nixon. Uh, and a dishonest person is, in this sense, easier to catch because he or she themselves is aware at some level that they are misrepresenting reality and this can generate feelings of guilt uh, or anxiety. Uh, whereas a bullshitter is indifferent to the very idea of reality itself. Uh, they think that reality should more or less be what they make of it. Uh, and since what they want to make of it changes day in and day out, uh, they have no concern uh, about moving from different positions day in, day out, uh, in order to, uh, if that coincides with their own subjective uh, opinions uh, and desires at any given time. 
Uh, and of course, this is Trump to a T, right? Uh, and it's also very much an outlook that's embedded in American culture, which has many hyper-capitalist propensities, uh, which are highly amenable uh, to a bullshit way of approaching the world. Somebody like Viktor Orban comes from a very different uh, standpoint, but still constitutes a form of postmodern conservatism, or so I argue. Uh, so Viktor Orban, for those who don't know, uh, is the Hungarian leader of the Fidesz party. Uh, they took power in 2010 uh, and just recently actually um, suspended any number of democratic rights in the country uh, with Orban more or less ruling as a modern day dictator. Um, the way that Orban uh, has framed his postmodern conservatism, uh, like Trump, is as a skepticism of liberal elites uh, and a skepticism of universalistic projects. Uh, for instance, like the European Union or like liberalism. Uh, this hasn't kept him, of course, from taking billions of dollars uh, from the European Union, uh, where that's advantageous. Um, but that's neither here nor there, of course. Uh, and Orban has focused on restoring a particularly Catholic uh, or Christian interpretation of the Hungarian identity uh, and establishing what he calls an illiberal form of democracy, where the real people of Hungary uh, who, of course, not the people in Budapest or at the Central European University or so on and so forth, uh, will finally have their say and will be able to ostracize all the foreign or antagonistic elements uh, and ideally either drive them out of the country or silence them once and for all. Uh, and this is a peculiarly postmodern phenomenon, of course, because Orban uses every trick in the book uh, to undermine the claims of universalistic region. Uh, he is well known uh, for distorting the truth uh, and undermining other truth-telling uh, institutions, whether the media or the judicial system. Uh, and it's also a postmodern phenomena with the skepticism he shows uh, towards any kinds of claims that contravene this very identity-driven narrative that he puts forward as central to modern Hungarian politics. One interesting, although somewhat disturbing, comment you make in the book is that many people who support these figures will continue to support them even if and as they fail to come through on their promises of material stability and safety, since there's a parallel promise of stability at the level of personal and social identity that will nonetheless be fulfilled. Can you unpack this dynamic here? Yeah, implicit in this uh, is a critique of what I might call the orthodox Marxist view or orthodox socialist view, that people are driven, ex driven exclusively or primarily by what's sometimes called interest uh, or human interest, uh, to use Jürgen Habermas's term. Uh, and this means their material interest, right? Uh, they want to be better off at the end of the day uh, in material terms than they were at the start of the day. Uh, and I see this uh, as too simplistic, uh, although and still very popular, unfortunately. Um, People are driven by a lot more than just their material interests, particularly in a postmodern culture. Uh, what people are also driven by is this need to have a strong sense of who they are uh, and what it is that they should value, and of course, why their life uh, may or may not be valuable. And integrating yourself into this cheesy narrative of being a heroic figure, standing against the tide of Islam, uh, or fighting against overeducated liberal elites, on behalf of the average person, uh, which of course isn't the average person really, it's uh, a reasonably well-off white male, uh, typically in his 30s or 40s, uh, sometimes older. Uh, this is a very powerful uh, narrative for a lot of people that they want to feel themselves to be part of. Uh, and 
because they've also been primed to see any counter-argument uh, or counterclaim uh, as ultimately something to be dismissed with skepticism because it comes from the elites or it's agitating on behalf of migrants or whatever. Uh, you're not going to see them deviating from this very often, uh, precisely because the narrative that they're driven by is so powerful and so important in stabilizing their identity, uh, and also because the people who usually put forward counter-narratives and claims are those they view as their fundamental antagonists and so are disinclined to believe under any and all circumstances. Uh, now, saying that, I do think that we're finally starting to see a few breaks uh, in the kind of structure of the postmodern conservative mentality because of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, you see that Trump's reaction to it has been very widely criticized uh, and his polling numbers have been dropping precipitously, uh, even amongst uh, people typically inclined to support the Republican Party. Uh, and the reason, I think, is because you can bullshit your way past a lot of things. Uh, you can bullshit your way past throwing children into cages. You can apparently bullshit your way uh, out of talking about a hurricane uh, that's going to blow up towns uh, on its path of destruction. Uh, but it's very difficult to bullshit your way past the possibility of mass death uh, from a virus uh, that spreads very rapidly uh, and has the potential to kill many thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, so whether that means that Trump is going to lose an election, uh, lose the election in 2020, I don't know. Uh, but certainly we've been seeing that his usual tactics are less effective than they have been in the past. And I really hope that that continues to be the case. Uh, although at the same time, you know, I do hope that he does eventually improve his behavior a little bit uh, to try to save more lives wherever possible. Coming up on the end of the book, you've given us a rather rich and compelling history of the last several decades, helping us understand the appeal of many contemporary political and cultural figures. So obviously you can't be expected to have all the answers on how to deal with this, but at least to give us some vague sense of what is to be done, what do progressive movements need to offer so that postmodern conservatism isn't the only game in town for making sense of and responding to late capitalism? Well, I put forward a few different possible solutions. Uh, all of this will be elaborated in a lot more detail uh, in my forthcoming book, Liberalism and Liberal Rights, A Critical Legal Argument, that I'm just finishing up now. Uh, but the two big ones, I guess I'll just end on that, uh, are I think that progressives need to abandon this kind of elitist commitment to institutional reform, uh, which is driven broadly rolls in or social democratic left for a long time. Uh, and what I mean by this is the notion that elites, particularly technocratic elites uh, and positions of power, should use institutions to shift the way the world operates and establish more egalitarian outcomes. Uh, and these are usually top-down projects like the European Union um, or like the establishment of many welfare states uh, in a European, or for that matter, in a Canadian or British context, uh, to a lesser extent, the United States. Uh, and the problem with this is it's insufficiently participatory to allow people the sense that they themselves uh, are building a better world and a more fair society. Uh, and this makes it very easy for reactionary pundits uh, to frame these efforts to establish more egalitarian outcomes uh, as some kind of snooty project uh, that's being driven by people with useless degrees uh, who've never worked a day in their lives. Uh, and they're taking money and resources from hardworking people to give it to migrants and other people who don't deserve to be there. Uh, 
Uh, now, a lot of this is, of course, bullshit uh, in the technical sense that I'm talking about. Uh, and it's used as a screen to solidify power in the hands of those who really do um, hold the levers of society in their hands. Uh, but it is an effective and simple narrative uh, that the left can't actually contravene uh, by continuing on the path of undemocratic institutionalism from the top. So that's one of the criticisms uh, that I make. The second criticism that I make, or, or sorry, proposal I should say that I make, uh, is that we need a restoration of the more down-to-earth egalitarianism uh, that we saw characterizing progressive politics in the 1950s. Uh, and what I mean by down-to-earth is achieving egalitarian distributions of goods, resources, and honors, uh, but in a way that's much more tangible uh, and much more driven by a powerful solidaristic narrative uh, than what we've seen with technocratic institutionalism. Uh, so, for instance, if you look at something like the Beveridge Report uh, in the 1940s, which is when national health care was instituted in the United States, uh, this is very much framed as a communal project that was going to establish a fairer society uh, in a context where Great Britain had just won a very long and very difficult war against Nazi Germany. Uh, and we needed to establish a kind of post-war society uh, that wasn't going to be riven by the tensions and inequalities of the earlier ones, because this was just fair uh, and is what people deserve after everything they've gone through. Uh, and I don't think that's what you see with a lot of these technocratic projects. Uh, you know, again, they're very much driven uh, technocratic egalitarian projects. They're very much pushed by the top. Uh, and I think what we should see more is trying to sell people on the idea of more egalitarian outcomes uh, in a way that's grounded in their traditions, grounded in their democratic national outlooks, uh, and that resonates with them symbolically and narratively uh, in a way that the that you you saw previously with something like the NHS. Hmm. Yeah, sounds very interesting. So, Matt McManus, thank you so much for being with us. Not a problem. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, I hope everyone's keeping safe. Uh, and hopefully, we'll all get through this relatively unscathed uh, and we start uh, interacting with our friends again. That'd be nice. I look forward to it. So thank you.